you know, when the time comes and we need everybody to, to be on the same page against a specific adversary, it's not a lot of defense tech and commercial companies in a kumbaya circle going, just, we don't know how this works. Give us money. We need more money which is a lot of what I see, like the whining coming today. So understanding how the DOD acquires stuff, if you're going to do business with the Department of Defense, like get the right people on board that understand that and can work within that system. Sitting on the outside, complaining about acquisitions and PPV reform, like that's not going to not gonna make any money. If we're lucky, we'll see reforms. Maybe they will be great. We'll see impacts from them five to six years from now. Like that's not going to matter between now and the flag going up. Hello, and welcome to the Scuttlebutt Podcast. This show exists to uncover the stories and tactics from today's and history's greatest military veterans all at the top of their craft. This show is for vets looking to expand their knowledge of unique industries and careers, vets seeking personal and professional growth, and for those high-performing individuals looking to succeed in life and business. I'm your host, Brock Briggs, and I'm committed to bringing each one of those things to you every week with a conversation with a unique individual. Today, I'm speaking with Colin Carroll. Colin is a former Marine Corps recon and intelligence officer and today works at Anduril on strategy and growth. Colin has been a part of several unique teams within and adjacent to the Department of Defense. We get into his time at Project Maven as well as the Joint AI Center to talk about building innovative teams from scratch, why people are the most important ingredient when determining success, and how those people influence the early culture of an organization. Colin also talks about some of the technical advancements AI is bringing to the battlefield and the changing state of the defense technology business, in particular, how people should be thinking about how to win in defense. You can find this episode as well as the video versions, transcripts, and other written content to keep learning all at scuttlebuttpodcast.co. Please enjoy this conversation with Colin Carroll. So I wasn't going to ask about this, but... Your brother Kieran told me I should ask about it and without even me prompting him. And so therefore, like that has to therefore be our introduction. Yeah, I can't wait. Uh, we have to start with the uh, Kathleen Hicks and the the joint AI project and getting fired from that. Like you had brought that up in our first conversation and I was like, man, that sounds like a funny story. And then I was like, maybe we won't get into it. And then Kieran was like, oh, you should ask him about it. And so here I am asking about it. Let's, let's get the story. Yeah. This will be the, the second time in 12 hours. That's the story. Oh, good. Um, I was so out to dinner last rehearsed. night with the, yeah, maybe we'll see. I was out to dinner with a friend who was uh, general Jack Shanahan's executive assistant last night. Then he, Shanahan was in charge of the joint AI center. General Mike Grillen took over from Shanahan. He was in charge when I actually got fired. This guy was asking me about what happened after he left. I think in the very short story, joint AI center worked under the DOD chief information officer. It was moved in 2020 to work under direct men of the deputy secretary of defense year where we had a, a transition in administration at that point. The previous administration, I'd say they relied more on the military uniform wearing general officers to get things done in the department vice the, the civilian officer secretary of defense. There was a, I'd say a bit of a backlash or kind of returning to normalcy. When the new administration came in, the Jake wasn't super well positioned at that point. We had the one, the one direct report to the deputy that was a military officer. And so I think that kind of set the Jake up for a little bit of failure. But the bottom line is, yeah, there was a command climate survey. The climate at the Jake wasn't super high. I think the Jake's life cycle from 2018 through 2021, when I was fired, it saw multiple leaders in charge. We had a colonel to start. We had a three-star. We had a H2E civilian from Silicon Valley. And then we had another three-star. 
in a really short period of time. So lots of changing agendas, changing concepts of what does the joint AI center for the Department of Defense do and what does success look like? And so there was a lot of churn and people were just generally unhappy. My role at the Jake was chief operations officer. It was really to, from 2020 to 2021, take a lot of the projects that had been started as what I'll call hobby projects in AI in the 2018-2019 timeframe and cut them and recover the budget for larger joint projects, right? The Jake had a big J in front of it and fill kind of combat command level prioritized requirements that the services weren't filling or weren't chartered to fill. And so in that process, there were people that had their hobby project, right? Their baby, they'd shown up with it showing up with it at the Jake from wherever they came from in the service or detailed there. And they were super unhappy when their budgets got cut. That plus the fact that I'm just a general asshole and I'm not super, I'm very direct to the point. I think that that combination led to a lackluster, we'll call it lackluster command climate survey. And when General Drone went to get his results from the deputy secretary, she told him point blank, Colin needs to be called by the end of the week, or maybe she said gone by the end of the day. I don't know. Drone kept me until the end of the week. And so that was that. Yeah, it was pretty sudden. Now I was a direct hire, what's called a highly qualified expert. So like an NCS level direct hire, not through USA jobs. It's very easy to hire, very easy to fire. And I think her kind of concept was like, we'll get Colin, not going to make a big splash, very easy to do. We'll see if that makes a change. I think the interesting thing is at the same time that, that I was fired, there was a big transition going with all the, what we'll call the kind of technical or yeah, it was called technical to the deputy secretary. So she's got, she had DOD chief data officer. She had DOD CIO. She had the defense digital service. She had the Jake. She had other technical components in the comptroller's office with the Advana program. And so she was in the process of creating a plan to merge all those things together into what is now the chief digital and AI office, the CDAO. And the Jake makes up the bulk of the people in CDAO. So the old Jake, most of the people are currently in the CDAO and they just had a, they just had another command climate survey a couple of months ago. It's public. I think someone in Fed Scoop or Defense Scoop wrote a report about it. The morale survey was pretty low. I actually think it was lower than when I was at the Jake. If you believe the open source reporting, it's like the lowest command climate score in the entire Department of Defense. And so I think that uh, a lot of the problems that were at the Jake, now CDAO, like nothing's really changed, I think. So I'm not sure I was exactly the, like firing me, I don't think was solving the, the problem of morale, but. That's interesting. What do you think about command climate surveys, like becoming public information like that? Somebody that I've had on the show a while back that really lives in that space, James Laporta, who is like the Freedom of Information Act king. And just like FOIA requests, like I think he said he's got the largest repository as like a civilian of all of command climate surveys. And he like does all this reporting on aircraft carriers specifically, but really tries to shine light on information to the public about things that seem highly sensitive, but I guess are should be public. I don't know. What do you think about that? Is that a good thing for the DOD, is that a good thing that I guess regular citizens know about that? If someone's told me, hey, you should FOIA your IG complaints and your and the command climate, maybe someday I will. To be quite frank, I don't really give a shit. I know exactly how I am. I know exactly what I did and why I did it. And yes, some people are upset. So sue me. But maybe someday I'll get around to actually getting getting my hands on that stuff and reading it. 
I think that FOIA is a really strong tool for the public to use to understand what is happening in the government, both local, state, federal government. So I'm fully supportive of using FOIA. Yeah, I think that in the case of command climate surveys, it depends on what the public, if the public wants information, great. If they're using the information to drive change, probably also good. I do think though that there are sometimes nuances within a command climate survey or just the morale of the unit that requires some contextual like understanding that might not be present in just the pure command climate survey response. And so you just got to take that to a grain of salt. I don't know what Frank does with it. I think in the case of CDAO, that was probably leaked. I don't think it was FOIA. And it's led to the director of CDAO, Craig Martell, getting a letter from Congress, a bunch of the, like Gallagher is one of them, summoning him to the Hill with a plan to change the morale of CDAO. I think that the useful tool in getting it out in public, like those congressmen would not have known if there was a problem there without that being public. But I think it'll be like, does the end result of, hey, now Congress is summoning you to Hill to testify or send a letter explaining what you're going to do to make changes. Is that really going to make a change? I'm not actually sure that's effective. It's interesting that the he received a summons to come and talk about that. I know that you said that was maybe the lowest command climate survey response ever, or it doesn't surprise me. I wouldn't put it past them. But do you think that the reason that he was called to talk about that has more to do with the high profileness of that command? Because I know that there are a lot of other commands that would probably consistently rank lower that have been around for a really long time that house a lot of people. But I know that the captains of aircraft carriers are not getting called to to talk about why they have large stints of like suicide on their watch and like low results on that. So I guess, do you think that has something to do with where the command sits in proximity or like hierarchy of things? Yeah, definitely. The closer you are to DC and the flagpole, the higher, higher skyline you are for something like this. But I, I don't know anything. I have to look at the the people that sent the letter. Mike Gallagher is Republican. My guess is it's Republicans. Politization about this. This is a CDAO is a created outside the guidance of Congress organization by a Democratic administration. There may be some, you know, targeted stuff going on there. I don't know. I just read the headline, so I'm not, not super read into it. But I do think that generally command climate surveys, my experience over the last six or seven years is that there's been a general trend towards the weaponization of these tools. Now, this is just my experience. That trend could have been in existence for the last 50 years for all I know, but generally a weaponization to achieve some kind of end state. That makes No, I definitely agree. Will you talk me through what your thought process has been since leaving there. And then I'd like to maybe get a little bit of a recap of what gets you into that position and kind of your career writ large. But I would feel like being let go from a position like that might feel like a blow. You said that you felt confident in that and like you knew what you did and that's totally great. That seems to like really not have phased you in terms of like career or like your outlook at all? Did that, did that hurt at all to be like, go from that? Oh yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I, so I think I was fired like a Tuesday at 6, 6.30 PM at the Pentagon. My boss was like, Hey, we're going to keep you in the Pentagon. Cause I was like, oh, here's my badge. I'm out. He said, 
now I need, basically you can't leave. We have to have you brain dump all your knowledge over the next three days. And we're going to, we're going to hide you. Like you can't walk around the hallways. You're just going to come into the skiff and we'll hide you here. And then Friday will be your last day. We had a farewell on Friday. So this is super interesting to me, like someone who's been fired. We had a farewell in Crystal City on Friday at a bar and there were people crying at this. It was like a funeral to the point where I had to give a speech. I'm not the best speech giver. They don't typically let me out in public and, and say words, but uh, yeah, I almost cried. I think I might've been crying at the end. And, and I say that because in my view, in my experience, working on the government side is where I would like to be. You don't make as much money. It might not be as exciting as working in industry, but uh, the reality is the person who's in the arena, one of my favorite quotes of all time, Teddy Roosevelt, the man in the arena, the person who's in the arena is the one responsible for making the changes required. And so when I sit here, I've been in industry now for a little over two years. I've been in industry previously. It's very difficult to make the best technology or best capability and then work with a clown on the government side who doesn't understand how to acquire it or how to employ it. And so we can all be awesome out here in industry and, and clap ourselves on the back and celebrate. But the reality is if your counterpart on the government side or counterparts on the government side don't really get it, then it doesn't really matter how great you are on the outside. So yeah, it did make me sad. Was it a blow? Yeah, I was, I did not plan on staying at the Jake or transitioning CDAO forever, but I also didn't plan on leaving in August, 2021, Thought I'd at least make it another six months before the uh, ax came and chopped my head off. So yeah, I think that at the time at the Jake, we were in the process of doing some needed reform internal and also standing up some major programs that we're going to supply joint warfighting capability to the combat commands and the component commands who in theory are getting serviced by service programs of record. But the reality is like those service programs are really delivering capability for the services and maybe not for the joint force. And so I think that Jake was well positioned to, to fill some of those roles. We had funding, we had smart people, we had great vendors. And I think after I left that kind of flatlines a little bit. It's back going now. It It's picked up, but they get flatlined for a year or two, which is unfortunate. Want- we don't have the time. We don't have two years to spare flatlining or stagnating on anything. We might as well be going backward at that point. Our adversary is definitely moving forward. Do you want to maybe give me a brief recap of kind of what got you into that seat to begin with, and then maybe what you've done since then? When I was preparing for this conversation, Several of the units, I know that you are like recon and intelligence in the Marine Corps and the Marine Corps, excuse me. And then basically every single place that you went after that, I had never heard of before. And so this has required a lot of some digging on my part and just asking people a lot of questions about several of these things, Project Maven, and then several other places afterwards. So maybe just give me a high level recap and then bring me up to, to current. Yeah, I have had a unique career in the Department of Defense for sure. And I, I very much lucked out coming out of the basic school to join the Marine Corps as an active duty officer. I was an intel officer. I got sent to Force Recon Company in Camp Lejeune, Second Force. Got super lucky. There's a bunch of intel guys that graduated. We went down there. They said, hey, who could swim the best? And I'm a really good swimmer. So I ended up getting the, the Force Recon job. Stayed there. I basically did my four years in recon and another year as a battalion intel officer for 2nd Battalion 9th Marines. 
just an eye-opening experience, very different from the reconnaissance community. Intel is very different from being like a team leader, platoon commander, company commander. I left active service after five and a half years and I did some, some industry work. I wound up becoming a federal civilian for lack of a better, what has been myself as the Department of Navy deception planner, which is super interesting. And I did that for almost five years. During that time, work at the joint level, primarily PACOM, now Indo-PACOM. I got to do some counter-ISIS work and it was just a lot of fun. Very different from what I do now though. So I got a call in 2017, it was late 2016 from Colonel Drew Kukor, who's a Marine that I previously worked with. And he said, hey, Colin, can you come up to Pentagon and do counter, counter intel for this new AI program called Maven? And I was like, okay, maybe I'm busy doing some counter ISIS stuff right now. But in yeah, mid-July, or sorry, mid-2017, it's probably around June, we had, there was a big operation called Setting Sun. Basically, it's the end of ISIS in Syria and Iraq. Uh, my role was more on the counter ISIS media side. And you can look up, there's a great podcast out there that a guy named Neil Ferrano gave on Operation Glow Symphony, OGS, at a large part. And so in July, it was, okay, this is done. What do I want to do next? This Maven thing sounds cool. So I went on orders as a Marine Reserve major, and I took six-month orders ori originally to do counter-intel for Maven. And what I learned when I got to the Pentagon was Maven consisted of Drew, a guy named Joe Larson, who was another, I think, major, maybe lieutenant colonel at the time on orders, Mike Rhodes, another captain, Marine Reservist on orders, and a guy named Cy Pogemeyer, who I think was a captain as well. And that was Maven. They had a one-page sheet of sheet of paper signed by Bob Work saying, establish the algorithmic warfare cross-functional team, Project Maven. They had 10 million bucks from SCO. They got donated from SCO. And I was like, okay, get after it. So what I realized really quickly was either I'd been conned into joining this team for six months to do a job that didn't, it wasn't really required. Like, there was no counter intel on this, or they actually thought there was, but the reality was I ended up being like the lead systems engineer, which is what I did in college in my master's program. So I went back and did that. I ended up staying for a little over two years. And in the process of that, I learned what AI was. I learned how to develop artificial intelligence for DOD. I had some previous acquisition experience in my prior role. So I learned a lot about how joint acquisitions works. And from there, our boss, General Jack Shanahan, left to take over the Joint AI Center. He was the, the founding three-star there. And he asked me to come with him when he left. So I jumped ship, worked at Johns Hopkins Applied Business Lab as engineer for the Jake, and then they made me a civilian again. And then I got fired in 2021. Since 2021, I've been out of industry, I spent two years working at a commercial BD company, Applied Intuition, standing up their defense business, their really government business. And I just recently left and joined Andrew um, in June. What of your experience so far has excited you? the most? I know that you feel really passionate about working in government and like pushing that forward. And I know that you're also very passionate about engineering, both topics that we're going to talk about. Is there anything that jumps out at you as this was my bread and butter and this is where I'm trying to stay? Like it in terms of not a location or a job, but just a, a sector or doing something specifically. 
Yeah, I'd say I'm passionate about two things. First is defense autonomous systems, and I can get into why. And the second, I think, from a government perspective is really quality program design. And I can get into why that is too. On the autonomy side, um, when I was at Maven, Maven was building at the high level computer vision, detection, classification, tracking models for geospatial intelligence, i.e. the end user in theory was an Intel analyst that was doing processing, exploitation, dissemination, the back half of the Intel cycle, PED on either MTI video feeds or group three, small UAS video feeds or U2 imagery or NTM or commercial satellite imagery. So the intent was automate this TED person. And what we learned really quickly is that the state of AI was not just, it wasn't there when it comes to, I'm going to replace a five, 10, 15 year experience intelligence analyst that's looking at imagery, just not there. For example, if you're running full motion video at 30 frames per second, and you've got five things in a frame that you want to detect and classify, you basically have 150 times to be wrong in one second. And if you multiply that by one minute, 60 minutes, eight hours, your chances of being wrong just exponentially, exponentially increase. And that's just getting one of the five things properly detected and classified incorrectly. It can also see a rock as a false positive and detect a sixth thing, for example. So as a human intel analyst looking at a full motion video feed at Creech Air Force Base on the flying MT9 side, the sensor operator side, or back at like GDS-1 at Langley, Virginia, if, as you're looking at the feed coming in and you see the Maven algorithm displaying detections and classifying stuff, if it starts to look it's just like jumpy and choppy and like wrong, you just turn it off because you're looking at the screen too and you know exactly what you're looking at all the time. What we learned though was if you move that algorithm from a server at the Intel Intel side and you actually put it up on the aircraft, then you can what I'll call cheat. And what I mean that is you don't have to be right every single frame. You can actually take the time to process those frames and make a determination like, yep, that is a T72. I don't have to be T72 single shot on frame zero. I can be T72 over 30 seconds of looking at this thing from different angles, flying around. And all I need to do at that point is send a J message out on link 16 that says, hey, there's a T72 at this location. The downstream receiver of that target information doesn't really care how long it took you to get to it. It just cares, is it accurate? Is the location accurate? What's the, what's the CP, TLE on the actual grid? And so at Maven, we were trying to convey the, we were in Undersecretary of Defense for Intelligence. They get military intelligence program, MIT funding to do Intel stuff. We were saying, hey, we want to put this up on an aircraft and automate it. This is actually the solution. Let's get rid of the head people, completely get rid of the pilot, the sensor operator. It just wasn't in the Maven charter. However, the Jake did have that charter. So when I moved over, we took a program that we started at Maven called Smart Sensor and really kicked it off. And it's, it's open source. It's not super behind the curtain, but it is a little bit on the down low just because the CDO team doesn't want to compete with some of the larger autonomy programs and services, but it's basically repurposing MQ-9s to make them fully autonomous for certain mission sets. And what I mean by that is able to fly into volume of airspace, look at an area on the ground with a set of sensors and do onboard multi-sensor AI processing fusion to both control the sensors and control the platform. 
to detect things. You kill your C2 link, you kill your GPS and the, the MK9. Now, would it actually go into link loss mode and return to base? But with the smart sensor can on board, it can stay in that airspace and fly a mission for hours and hours without a human in control, just sending J messages out to other shooters or other sensors. So that's my passion is how to actually make a fully autonomous air-delivered ISRT aircraft that can operate without a human in the loop. The human in the loop basically saying, hey, here's the air space, here's the mission you're going to go do. But at that point, it goes into this mission. And then on the program design side, yeah, what I've learned is from a PM perspective in the government, if you don't design your acquisitions program, i.e. both the technical aspect, but also the technical being like, hey, well, what am I trying to do to develop? And then from a programmatic side, like, how am I going to buy it? How am I going to get vendors to play nice with each other, et cetera? But your program is basically doomed. And I can tell you, there's so many poorly designed programs that I've either observed from the government side or worked with on the industry side, that the ones that aren't poorly designed stand out like a shining star. And so I would love to work on the government side with advising or over the over some of these PMs say, hey, here's what right looks like, especially when it comes to acquiring software, which is something the government just doesn't really do well. Uh, we love buying services and we love buying hardware, but software like continues to confound the government. There's a whole lot of different pathways that Congress has authorized, that the OSD, ANS is authorized down to the programs, but they're still struggling, I think, to really get it. So those are my two passions. On that first bit that you were talking about, it's interesting that you at least at that time, the thought process was that you were going to have a determination made in each frame rather than because from like the pure statistics perspective, the whole point of developing a model like that is allowing it to improve over time and collect more and more inputs until there's like statistical certainty that, hey, yes, this is what we say it is. And like you said, you've got it from multiple angles and viewing it from multiple spots and is the object moving and all of those things. What caused that kind of shift? Because maybe just hindsight 2020, it's easy to say, oh, that's obvious. But was that a technological shift? Was that just didn't have the right person thinking about it? Or what do you think was the reason for that jump there? You're talking about the jump from supporting intelligence analysts in a server at Langley versus putting the model on a plane doing autonomy. Yeah, I think that the roadmap for Maven, so first you got to understand Maven was a bunch of reserve Marine officers and Drew Kukor, an active duty colonel, who to be quite clear, had never done this before. And if you were going to start Maven all over again, you probably wouldn't have chosen these people. If you do, it's going to be a $250 million program that was delivering AI to the department. What I think Maven, what was special was actually the team that was chosen. So while maybe not the right people on day one, super high bandwidth, hard workers, like work 18 hour days, seven days a week, protection from a three-star, protection from the undersecretary, protection from the deputy secretary to really blaze a path. There are so few programs like that in the department. At the service level, like it's really rare. You've got your AFWorks, it's like they move quickly, but they don't, have the, they don't have the budget. They're not doing the large scale program like that. You've got Air Force Rapid Capabilities Office, probably the closest thing to a maven that's at a service that maybe there's one or two other kind of osd run or other agency run programs that move really quickly so if you understand the the team that built maven i think then you'll understand 
why maybe we didn't realize right away what it looked like in the first month or even six months. I do think that Maven always had a roadmap to try and move everything up to a plane, but it was still, it was more designed for like edge processing to send the detection down to a tactical operator or tactical intel guy at a talk in Baladogle, Somalia. It was never designed really for, hey, how are we going to automate the whole thing and just eliminate people from the loop? It was not an autonomy program. You touched on not having the right people, but maybe it's still being okay like that. It wasn't maybe the right people at that time. One of the things that you told me in the prep for this conversation, you said that culture is the number one foundational aspect of an organization. And I think that's driven by having good and I don't know, the right people. So where do you think that falls into that? And then maybe what do you think you look for in people to maybe start a team or developing that kind of early culture? So on the Maven, early, early Maven people piece, I think my point there is if somebody were to say, hey, we're going to design a billion year over the FIDIP or billion dollars over the FIDIP program to develop AI and field it to the Department of Defense, primarily spatial intelligence, so, so vision stuff. If that was dictated down from the start, I don't, most likely the department would have put together a team that looked very different from the original Maven team. And to be quite frank, the team at the department probably would have failed. Seen it. I've seen him try. The Jake was very similar to, hey, we're going to get all these AI experts and stuff like that. And so the Jake didn't deliver a whole lot. It didn't move quickly. So yeah, when I think about building a team, like I've been super lucky in my career, just generally speaking. I went to Force Recon. My enlisted at Force Recon went to Brown at Dartmouth and shit. They were way smarter than me. They were all super motivated. And to be honest, I inherited my first team. I inherited a team that basically done the deployment together already. And so they work together really well. And then from there in my career, I've had the privilege of either inheriting a really quality team that somebody else built or being able to build a team from scratch. I'd say the first place in my career that I did not have that actually was at the Jake. I inherited a team of about 100, 150 people that had been built over the previous couple of years. And my observation that was a lot of those people were the wrong people. And I think is that observation shared with plenty of other people who've been at the Jake. So. Yeah, when I look at it, I remember when I was at Maven, General Shanahan asked some of the Maven people to come over to, I don't even know, Fort McNair, I think, and, and give like a, call it a TED Talk, a day of TED Talks to the, the very initial Jake team. And there's a guy out there named Brendan McCord. I call him the godfather of the Jake. He was at DIU, I think he was an HQE at DIU, I'm DIUX, I Maven stood up. But he very much architected the concept of a Jake and got it through both Congress and the department to become a real thing. Brendan was like, hey, Colin, you got to come over and talk. What do you want to talk about? Hey, we've got a t guy talking. We've got like our acquisitions guy talking. My role at, at Maven was really the integration of Maven capabilities into other programs. But I said, hey, I want to talk about people. I walk into this room and they'd done a, like the classic brainstorming session of two different boards. And it was like, what is the Jake to me? And what do I want the Jake to be? And everybody got sticky notes and put them on the sticky note board. It's like the classic thing they teach you like, okay, if we don't really know what to do, we'll do this. And so I, I went up to the board, I'm reading through these things. What, what is the Jake to me? It's getting capability of the warfighter faster. And like, what does the Jake need to do? It needs to bust through obstacles and 
get capability to warfighter faster. It needs to like work with Congress. Congress needs to like us, the service needs to like us, whatever. There's all sorts of stuff on there that people thought, hey, this is what the Jake is for my specific role to Jake. I went up to the board and because I'm a huge asshole, I just wrote for the one, it was, what is Jake to me? I put like the right people in black mark. I just wrote over everything, black marker. And then on the board that said, what do I, what does Jake need to be? I wrote, not the wrong people. He wrote over everybody's stuff. And my point that there is that people are actually the most critical component of any organization. People will say it's the culture, but I actually think people start first, culture is second. They're both really critically linked. When I stood up to give my TED talk at, at the Jake that day, I said, everybody look to your left and right. The odds are that one of those people is not the right person and won't be at the Jake in six months. And of course, everybody thought I was a dick. But the reality is that was 100% true. People used to ask me like, hey, how do you get the Maven culture here at the Jake? And what I would say is before Maven, there wasn't Maven, right? Before Maven, there was a sad hallway in the basement of the Pentagon where USCINS had a ISR task force that was super relevant probably in 2010 to 2015 and getting ISR capabilities out to the combat command using OCO funding. But it really atrophied and it wasn't super relevant by the time that uh, Maven stood up in 2017. So it's just sad hallway full of people that did their like 9 to 4 p.m. jobs, sat in VTCs every day but didn't say anything. Like that's what the four of us walked into when we started Maven. It was that. We actively created a culture by bringing in people that were not that. And it was super interesting in USDINS or really in OSD in general to have a team of like younger reserve officers, primarily Marines, Navy, other services that were running around just moving so much faster than the bureaucracy of the Pentagon and 10 times, 100 times, 1,000 times faster than things get done at the Pentagon. That's the type of culture that I want to surround myself with all the time. And those are the type of people. So when you say, hey, what do you look for in a person? I just got done building a team at Applied Intuition Government. I was the first person there in 2021 after I was fired. I think the team is now 20, 25 people here in DC. They're in Roslyn. What I look for is two things. One is determination and the ability to just get shit done. I would pick a person that has very little experience in whatever the role is technically smart in their area, whether it's mission expertise or whether it's engineering expertise, or whether it's capture and proposal expertise or whether it's market expertise. I'd rather take a, a, a person that's very new to that area, but wants to get shit done, has no bad habits from working at Raytheon or Lockheed or wherever that we can shape to the right person for the type of organization that, that I like running. And the other is I do look for technical expertise in an area. So what that might look like is if I'm trying to hire a business development person for an Air Force program. I'm looking for someone that knows like a junior officer type, or maybe someone that was junior officer, but went to another company that understands how the Air Force acquires stuff. And I think those are, that's a super rare person, typically someone coming with acquisitions background, coming out of a PEO. So that's what I look for. But really I'm looking for someone that can just move as fast as I move. And I move pretty quickly. How do you measure that? I'm sure that you've interviewed probably hundreds of people and brought on and started and led all of these teams. How do you look past a resume and see that in somebody's past or maybe questions that might 
lead you to the conclusion that they are or aren't that person. Yeah, that's some secret sauce that I've got. I will say this. I, you know, when people interview with me, it's not your typical interview. I love grabbing a beer with a candidate or dinner. I'll bring people over and cook dinner for them. I used to at Maven, people know this about me. I used to at Maven, I was like in charge of bringing people into Maven, mostly reserve officers. That was my thing. I wanted to grow the team, make sure that we had good people. I used to go for runs in the middle of the day. Like I'd go for a run during lunch. I'd run out from the Pentagon, run around the mall, come back and just be disgusting, right? Like I looked like I jumped in a pool. I probably smelled like ass. And I would take an interview right after that. I'd probably show up late. I didn't really like Larson or someone in there start the interview. I'd show up late. And if the person could deal with me, like we knew that was probably the right person. So that that's one kind of method. I can't get away with that now. But yeah, I, I think the, I very much, when it comes to hiring, like to talk to a person that's coming on the team, even if they're even if not going to be their direct supervisor, just to get a feel. Now, have I screwed up in the past? Absolutely. I've hired duds for sure. I think that in industry, the key is what I'll call the Netflix method of HR, which is be very, hire the best people you can at the price point, that the best price point you can, but if it's not working out, just let that person go pretty quickly. I think Andrew is very similar. They've had that mindset. Applied tuition definitely has that mindset. Yeah, you hire a dud, you can get rid of a dud pretty quickly. On the duty side, it's obviously harder. You're getting active duty people that just like rotate into your org. You may not even have a say who that is. If you're lucky, you've got a, you know, session kind of process, but most organizations don't have that. On the reserve side, if you bring an officer on orders, you can orders relatively quickly. So I'm not perfect. I'm not people that are listening to this that know me will be like, oh man, well, Colin hired just one guy. Yep, that's accurate. I've done that too. Where do officers and or maybe even enlisted getting out of the military looking to join programs and innovative companies like this, where do they hang out? Where are the people that they are spending time around? Because I the the longer that I do this podcast, the more and more interesting people that I get to talk to. And it's such a strange phenomenon for me because I, I talk to these people and I'm like, there is, I never met anybody like this when I was in, I didn't meet anybody that thinks like this. And maybe it was just happenstance or whatever you want to call it. But where do these people hang out at? Yeah. I don't think there's any singular place that people hang out to be quite frank, just because the way the active duty military works, it's a crapshoot for what MOS you get to crash to where you wind up and what unit you wind up in. And then every couple of years you're moving anyway, but only there's maybe a pool of people that all hang out in one place. Something like Maven is different because it was reservists. A lot of the reservists were honestly by name selected, but we reached out to people that we knew within our community who we worked with previously, or that we'd been told, Hey, I know a guy who's worked with this person. This is the right person. And so that was probably a little bit more unique, but again, reservists, these people existed out in industry doing other jobs before they came on orders. Um, on the active duty side, it just depends on what you want to do when you get out, right? And how you want to position yourself. You interviewed my brother. So I remember we're twin, we were competitive as shit. I remember I got out of the military. We both went to the Naval Academy. So in the same class, he's a history major. I'm an aerospace engineering major. Uh, I go in the Marine Corps, he goes in the Navy. He's doing all his like tactical service warfare stuff. And then he goes and does a bunch of cool guy shit with this field teams and whatever the hell else he did. This is probably like 2010, 2012. I'm, I'm now getting out and he's just now starting his like cool guy thing. 
I used to tell them like, dude, you're joining this cool guy stuff at the, at the time you actually should be looking to go to somewhere like the Pentagon or go into like acquisitions or do something slightly different that positions yourself, maybe slightly better for whatever you want to do when you get out. And he's like, no, I want to go. I want to go on this boat off the coast of Libya, like fuck off for a year. Okay. I've been there too. It's fun. So that's the kind of route that he was taking. And then I thought, we'll see how this ends up for him. But hey, he really wanted to, he got a map, an MBA, which I think is a great exit program for officers or enlisted who want to get into the kind of venture capital space. Less about what you learn in the MBA, but more about the networks that you create. And he wound up doing that. He wound up going to a venture capital back startup. He used to give me shit all the time when I was in government. He's like, you never actually been in industry. You don't know what, you don't know what it's like. That's fair. It is very different in the industry than it is on the government side. So I don't think there's any like singular path, right? I didn't get an MBA. I remember going to a career conference in 2012 here in DC. It was the Tri-Service Academy Career Conference. So, you know, Air Force, Army, Navy, running into a bunch of, a bunch of my classmates. And I think it was like McKinsey or BCD, probably McKinsey. BCD is a little more flexible. And these guys are like, oh yeah, you're a pre-MBA. And I remember looking at this dude who I knew from my class and be like, hey, dude, I'm a, never going to fucking get an MBA. And oh, by the way, if I ever came to McKinsey, like you would work for me. And so they're looking at me like, oh, you're never going to work here. You're right. I don't ever want to work at McKinsey. But there's a place for that. There's a place for people like that. So anyway, I don't think there's any singular route. I think it's where do you want to be? And then you need to in your either activity career, if you've got the time for schooling on the side or in your immediate transition period, going through something like SkillBridge, which is a really powerful program that didn't exist when I was active duty, looking at, hey, what kind of master's program, or if you're enlisted, how do I get a degree? How do I get the, ma get the master's program I want? And it sets yourself up for success. But even like that kind of templated approach is not the right thing for everybody. And you don't need to do that to be successful. I've got plenty of friends who worked for me in the rink or who are enlisted who do not have a college degree and make a shit ton of money. Some of them started their own businesses. Some of them are just crushing it in Pentagon. I've hired repeatedly some of these guys because I know they're very good. And they look at me like, hey, my, my fiance says I should get a degree. Like, why? Are you just going to go into debt and you're not going to get paid anymore and you're already crushing it? You don't need that. So I think every path is unique. But generally speaking, if you're looking at the venture capital, hey, I want to do a VC-backed startup there probably is a little bit more of a template that you want to follow just because that's what the venture guys are looking for. And on the whole, most of the venture guys aren't super creative, right? It's like just a you know, one VC does something and then the rest just follow along. So yeah, that template I think might apply a little bit more there. MBA definitely for the non-technical people, the non-engineers, your CTO side, the master's in engineering. Have you spent any time thinking about how to figure out what you care about? Like you're obviously very articulate and clear about your direction and like where, like the things that you're passionate about. Has it always been that way or has there been points when down the path, like it reveals itself or I'm guessing you probably didn't always know that you were going to do this. Yeah, no, definitely didn't know. I have a, it might be different now, but I used to say what major colonel, general officer spent their career thinking when I'm in charge of the Joint Artificial Intelligence Center, or when I'm running the chief digital AI office at the Department of Defense, that's just not a thing. Now, maybe there's some like unique person out there that this is what they wanted to do their entire career. Fuck this infantry thing. I cannot wait until I am 
running the CDAO. On the whole, that's just not how the active duty service sets people up, right? It's, hey, here's the pathway to platoon commander, company commander, tag commander, or squadron commander, fly my plane, squadron commander, going to go do my joint billet, going to go to a, here's how I become a general officer. That's the path to get there. And it's very operational with like sprinklings of education and sprinklings of training and sprinklings of other joint billets that are there in between. So yeah, I was not the guy that was like, man, when I'm done recon, this is what I'm going to go do. And to be quite honest with you, I had a blast for almost 10 years doing both intelligence, special operations type stuff for the Marine Corps, and then basically things for another five years. It was super operational, very much looking at the threat. And where I was in 2012, 2015, 2016, that I was like the only person that was saying, hey, PRC, I'm the guy that volunteered for my organization to go do PRC things when everybody else wanted to go do ISIS stuff. And I learned a lot during that period. Yeah, there was a time there where I thought maybe I'll stay in this community and do that. I think my eyes were really opened when I got to Maven. And in the first week or two, I was just so surprised at how what I thought was like readily available commercial technology on my iPhone, et cetera, was not available to the warfighter. And shit that like in 2010 that I saw downrange hadn't changed at all in a decade. That blew my mind, especially when it comes to the amount of money that the taxpayer is dumping into the Department of Defense every year. I could not believe it. And then as I went around, did the ecosystem tour of, hey, what is the actual state of geofficial AI in the department? I joined Kukor and Larson. Like, this is what it's like, but I'm me. I'm a skeptic about everything. So I want to go see, I want to go talk to everybody. I want to see what they're doing. I got that from that trip. And I was just like, man, this needs massive disruption. And a place like Maven with the three-star USCINS, the actual civilian USCINS, the deputy secretary kind of backing, like we've got the ability to actually do some massive disruption here. And we could talk about successes and failures of that disruption. I think there were some successes, there were definitely some failures, but yet that really drove me to think, okay, this is where someone like me belongs. And yeah, that's how I got where I am. I think something that I hear that is common amongst some of the more successful people that I talk to is people eagerly pursue positions where they can actually influence change. And I think a lot of people are negligent about people love to just put themselves in this, this build this house around them that what they do is so important. And in the reality is they're not really actually responsible for much, nor it really doesn't matter that they're there but it just helps feed self-importance and you need to actually be on the cutting edge, which that puts you in position to get fired. Sometimes that puts you in position to be responsible for a lot of failure, but the upside is much larger and you're able to move at a pace that I think is difficult to match otherwise. Yeah. There's a lot of truth in that statement. Is there any distruth or falsities in that statement? I live in DC. I worked at the Pentagon. I would say there is a whole ecosystem of people that thrive on building a house around themselves to inflate their importance and serve as, generally speaking, I'll call them talking heads, thought leaders, et cetera. And I ain't going to dime anybody out by a name on here, but there are a lot of these people out there. I think in the department, there's a role for, there's a bunch of roles, right? You got policy, like what I just said. People can say, hey, that equates to policy, literally everybody in policy. 
I don't think that's 100% accurate. I think that the policy role is really important. But when it comes to how do you actually make a material change rapidly in defense, it's the people with money that are doing it. So it's the services, primarily, in my opinion, the service programs of record. So procurement dollars and not, not R&D dollars. It's A&S in the department, but really anybody with a budget and a charter can go out and work with industry to transition department from point A to point B. I think there's, in addition to just a material solution, there's the concept of employment, the whole .mlpf aspect of now I've got a thing. How do I ensure that everyone knows how to use it? I sustain it, et cetera. And that's a hard thing. Like the programs get that really well, but I think our community hasn't doesn't really figure that out. It's not really their charter. Yeah, that's the truth that I see. There's always a there's always a role for the kind of talking head crowd in from an industry perspective, like we work with think tanks, we work with the thought leadership crowd to try and get our concepts, which we might not be as eloquent or able to transmit out into the ecosystem, just because if it comes from a, a company sticker on it, people think, hey, it's very salesy or it's biased. But the reality is we work with these kind of talking head types to get a theme out there and drive the conversation over time such that the department like begin to understand, hey, this is how we see the world. You've got a lot of experience on kind of both sides of the aisle, dealing with the policy folks, dealing with the company or business or whatever you want to call it, that's putting together the technology and all of that. I want to talk a little bit about how to start and win a company in like the defense sector, something you, like you said, you got a lot of experience in, you stood up that segment at Applied Intuition. I think that probably the best place to start with that would maybe be how the government buys things today, because I think that's relevant if you're going to build a defense company today, you're, if the government doesn't buy your stuff, it is not going to work, right? Biggest point here is, I'll say up front before I start talking about specific examples, is that I don't think there is a cookie cutter template that can be applied to say, Here, here's how to do government business. And I say this having worked with probably 30 to 40 commercial, non-traditional and traditional defense contractors at Maven and at the Jake, and also from my experience uh, at Applied Intuition and at Andrew. And so what that means is if you're looking to do work with the DOD, it really comes down to people, which is what I said before, depending on where you are on the spectrum of your company life cycle, the person that you're looking for is probably very different. Person that needs your kind of government go to market, government, government growth business line. So let me just walk through three examples really quickly. When I was in the department, I worked with many small computer vision startups that were out of the Bay Area. And these guys were so nascent that they didn't really have any commercial revenue. I call them pre-revenue, but they had great technology. So pre-commercial revenue, pre-defense revenue in the process of building their product still. So very nascent, series A, series B, like still working the product piece and not a mature high TRL product. They came in and they got DOD revenue. That's one stage of a company. I'm working to get revenue at the same time. I'm like working to mature my product. Another stage of a company might be a, an applied intuition. It's been around for six years, has a lot of commercial revenue, has a very mature product with thousands of users, and now wants to transition into DOD. This is what I would consider to be like a true dual use company. And to be quite frank, these are pretty rare unless you're talking about like Microsoft or an Oracle, someone that just sells the boat and it's been around forever. But on the startup side, it's pretty rare to see a true dual use company. 
And to be quite honest with you, Applied had tried a couple of times where they hired me. And I came in and recognized like, hey, this is where they are in the life cycle of the business. This is what is actually needed to succeed in DoD. I lucked out. I didn't have to mature a product at the same time I was trying to sell it. I had a mature product. So like it was a, it was an easier approach. And the design I took to the team reflected the approach and the kind of situation Applied was in. And then you go to a company like Andrel is around the same age as Applied. It's much larger. It is not a commercial company. It does development in a, with a commercial mindset. It is venture capital back, but it is a defense contractor, non-traditional for sure, but a defense contractor. It's in a very different life cycle of depending on where you are and which business unit you're in and which product you're talking about, like it's different stage of maturity, building the teams to sell that, the, the teams look differently. So the Andrews force protection team is its oldest business line, the towers that do counter UAS and counter intrusion, mature product. The business team that's leading that looks very different from very nascent early stage, like command and control, where we're still very much working in like an R&D space. They're, the, the product's mid-TRL, high-TRL, some products, mid-TRL, other components. That growth team looks very different. So that's the one thing I'll say is when it comes to designing the kind of government team, it's going to look different based on where you are. And to be honest with you, the team that over time, the team that you hire three years ago might not be the right team for the next stage of where you're trying to go. And that is where I think the Netflix kind of theory of HR comes in, which is, hey, you were the best DVD shipper on the planet back when DVD shipping at Netflix was a thing, but now we're doing streaming. I need streaming network engineers, like goodbye DVD shipper. That I think is uh, something that I haven't really seen executed across the board, generally speaking, for defense tech startups or even commercial kind of dual use startups. What is it that you highlighted that you need something different at each stage or uh, like different life cycles of the business, wherever you fall on that more spectrum, if you will? What do you think helps each of those succeed? Is it relationships with the government? Is that I'm trying to delineate what is more important at each of those? Maybe even we can use those examples about what makes the early six, the pre-revenue companies successful versus what makes applied successful. I understand that they all three can be like affiliated and receive government funding and have the government purchase their stuff, but what makes each succeed? Oh man, this is such a broad question. So let me start with what is not accurate first. So I'm gonna pick a fight here, but back in May, Applied Tuition hosted, we hosted a couple day conference called Nexus, the, kind of bridging national security with the autonomy community. Lots of talking heads get up. Mark Andreessen, who's on the applied board. He was one of the keynote speakers. Somebody asked him, hey, like, how do you succeed in defense? And he said, it's got to build the best product and they'll have to buy it. And all I could think was that is the worst advice. <laughs> that is the worst advice. But at the time, I'm like, all my competitors are here. I'm so glad they're hearing this advice. Hopefully they think that's actually the, the right answer. So we're not to, we're, what not to think is if I build the best product, the UD will have to buy it. This is not how it works. When it comes to like where I am in my life cycle as a company, I think the right answer is doing the offsite, take some time. Maybe you got to bring in a consultant. I don't know. Maybe you've got the right people in your company. Do some operational design on the reality of where am I? Where's the staff of my product? What's the market fit for my product? And then what does my team need to look like for this kind of current stage? So for a pre-revenue company, hiring a government relations person and like lobbyists to do, I don't know, authorization or appropriations work. That's probably not the right 
stage in life cycle to do something like that. It's probably more, hey, where am I going to try and find cyber money or which basic or applied research lab am I looking at? Naval research lab, army research lab, air force research lab. Like where are the requirements coming from there that I can get into? Maybe it's low dollar type stuff from AppWorks or SoftWorks or NavalX versus, hey, I've got a mature product and I understand that programs of record have a requirement for my product at this point. So now I'm looking at PEOs, maybe it's partnerships with some of the larger primes that are going to be winning like a vehicle program where my technology can fit in. That's, so my, my, my recognition is through the operational design, say, Hey, I'm at point A, I want to be at point B. How do I get to point B in a year or two years? And then repeat that every year or every six months, because it's going to be super dynamic as your company changes and as the ecosystem changes. Okay. I, I see why you're, why you called that a broad question. I thought that it was a specific question, but I, I see what you're saying is like, there's maybe not necessarily certain things at different phases of the business life cycle that will or will not make the company succeed with the DOD. Yeah, that's correct. Yeah. The things that I'm doing at Andrew now in my business line are very different from how I approach applied intuition. And how I personal intuition is very different from how I advised companies that I was contracting with when I was in the DoD, some of these early stage companies about how to become a real company and also sustain, sustain and grow DoD revenue. Everybody was, every company in that kind of spectrum was in a different place. One of the things that you had told me leading up to this is you said that most defense companies are doing it wrong. Does that have to do with kind of your comment about Mark Andreessen? Like, you think that they are too focused on just building the best product and not worrying about how to sell it? Yeah. I wouldn't say most defense companies, I because I think a lot of defense companies, like the Raytheon, Lockheed's, TDs, they tend to, from a shareholder perspective, do it right. From a warfighter perspective, maybe they're doing it wrong. But from their perspective of, hey, I'm making this thing, trying to make a profit for my shareholder, like they're doing it right. I think that new to entry defense tech companies or commercial companies are trying to grow in the defense space. Yeah, most of them are doing it wrong. And that's because they don't have the right people to really advise them on what it looks like, or they're following a cookie cutter template approach that doesn't apply to like their specific situation. They read a book or they hired a guy to be somewhere and that person's, this is how I did it here. I'm just going to come over and do the same thing, which is human nature, by the way. Like that's just how we think about the world. I have experience. My experience must apply to this new problem. I think the power of operational design, which is a joint, joint planning tool that I'm very familiar with and very, a big proponent of, which is like, where am I? Like, look at myself, my company is in point A, be very realistic about where you are where do you want to be and then design a plan to get there and will be unique to you. Very different from maybe a competitor in the States. Are there companies or certain technologies that you think of as particularly interesting today? Maybe it's something that you guys are doing at Anduril. Maybe it's even applied where you were working before. Are there things that kind of are top of mind when you're saying, and, and I'm talking from like the warfighter perspective. I'm, I think that's, I like that delineation of worrying about shareholders versus actually bringing technology to the battlefield that's useful and moves us forward in that way. But what is interesting to you in terms of technology in the warfighter's hands today? Yeah, I think. The big thing that's top of mind, like what the last you know, couple of weeks I've been looking at is this replicator concept that's coming out of the deputy secretary's office. What she said publicly is, hey, how am I going to work with industry 
in particular, she represents commercial industry to create a, to basically scale or accelerate production of unmanned systems, multi-domain unmanned systems to deliver 10,000, or she could give some number 10,000 to the warfighter, but also understand that, hey, those 10,000 might go away in the first nine, six hours. So we need 10,000 more and 10,000 more and 10,000 more. And this is stemming from her visits to Europe, where she's seen kind of lessons learned from Ukraine, and then also to the PACOM AOR, into PACOM AOR in the summertime. I think that Replicator is a awesome idea. We actually pitched Maven, a bunch of us pitched Maven on a similar concept in like 2019, early 2020, but this is not the, the path that Maven went. I think that their objectives are twofold. One is how do you scale production, which is an interesting problem in and of itself. And the other is how do I get autonomous, uncrewed multi-domain systems to a warfighter and enable them to create a concept of employment such that we actually can use these things. And so, yeah, I've been spending a lot of time thinking about this. This is right in Andrew's wheelhouse. We do the, we do submersibles, we do many aircraft, we've got a land systems team. I think one of the requirements that might be unsaid in Replicator is how do I do multi-domain heterogeneous unmanned system command and control? And what I mean by heterogeneous there is different vendor provided families of systems. So for example, you take Android, it's got its family of systems. They're all running a software called Lattice. Like they've got mission autonomies. If you send that family of systems out, it's going to go do a mission autonomy to some level of performance. What you can't do is take that and combine it with Raytheon's Coyote or Shield AI stuff and do a every single platform in the same kill box against the same target, all collaborating and coordinating because they're all running different mission autonomies. So how can you, I think that's going to be something that duty's got to figure out unless they just say, hey, Raytheon, you got your kill box. Andrew, you got your kill box. Shield, you got your kill box. Like everybody go. That might be a, a great interim solution in the 24, 25 timeframe, but it's probably not the right answer for the long-term. So how do you do coordinated command and control and mission autonomy behaviors across the like multi-domain heterogeneous family systems? That's the big thing that's on my mind and where my head is every day at Andrel. Yeah, hopefully that helps answer some of your question. You got a follow-up? Uh, just another layer on top of that. Is there anything that you think about as a major problem that is underserved right now? I'm always just curious to tap into what existing opportunities are in people's line of work. And especially for defense tech, there's, I, I've had, I'm on this streak of having defense tech people on here. So now I'm like curious about, Hey, what is it that's not being built that should be? And I don't know, it could be something that you guys are addressing now, but even better if you've got something that you're like, nobody is doing this one thing and somebody should. I've got two approaches to this question. One I think is on the government side and the other might be on the industry side. So I'll start with industry first. That's your question. So I'm a firm believer in a life cycle of a company. There's the, hey, I raised a shit ton of money from a bunch of venture capital people. And now I'm in like pure engineering. I'm just spending other people's money and building a cool thing. That is a great place to be. Andrew spent years in this place. If you're out there and you're thinking, hey, I want to build something, that's the, the state company you want to go to to build the cool thing. At some point though, you get to the reality of, hey, I need to make money and the government might not have a market for my cool thing. So if you can't create that market and that is a whole of company approach to communications, engagement, marketing, government relations with Congress, right? How do I go from, I've got a thing to, I've got a program, a record palming for, right? Requesting budget for buying this thing three to five years from now. And then going through all the DT and OT, like that's a hard process to go through. 
but that is the life cycle of, of every defense tech company. I think most probably never quite make it there. They, they spend a lot of time, years, decades in the, the cool R&D phase, but you're never going to, you're never going to become a real boy company if you spend your time down there. So I know that there's any like specific technologies I would say, Hey, yes, this is a major gap. I'm a firm believer in the fight is coming really soon. And so when it comes to like how we win the fight, the reality is yes, defense tech and smaller companies will help win. They'll play their role, but like we don't win the fight without Lockheed, Raytheon, Boeing, Northrop and GD. And so I think from a government perspective, it's how does the government incentivize those companies to maybe change their business models in such a way that reflects how some of the smaller non-traditional tech companies do goodness, do development, do tests, think about the world. Yeah, that in my mind is how, how we won previous conflicts and really what's going to be required to win the next conflict. And I don't have the best answers for this. I've got some ideas and concepts, but to be quite frank, I don't know if any of them are the right answer. And I'm not even sure if what I just said is the reality. We might look back in 2030 at a fight in 2027 and say, wow, Lockheed basically didn't do shit and thank God for companies like Andrew and Shield, et cetera. I don't know. The other thing I think from a government perspective is, and, and there may be places for industry to plug in here, but if the demand signal's not there, i.e. dollars aren't there, then in my opinion, it's very hard for me to recommend to a company or to venture to invest in a company to do something when the demand signal's not there, unless that company's got a really solid plan to generate that demand signal. But on the government side, when it comes to autonomy, it's just severely underinvested relative to their hopes and dreams. So you look at like the joint warfighting concept, you look at this concept of manned, unmanned teaming, some of the larger programs that are out there now at PEOs, both in the Navy, the Air Force, the Army, there is just a general lack of understanding and what it takes to make an autonomous system. And I've said this on podcasts previously, I say this everywhere I go, I would love to stick all of these PMs, anybody that's got autonomy as a requirement in their program, I'll stick them on a bus and drive them to Tesla and make them sit there for a month and just observe how Elon makes autonomy software and tests autonomy software. I think their eyes would be opened relative to the process and what is actually necessary technically. I think their eyes would be opened relative to the budget required to do that. Elon is investing a billion dollars just in the backend infrastructure relatively per year for the last 12 years. You just don't, like DOD's not doing that internally. The Northups and Lockheeds and Bones of the world, the ones that are supposed to make the actual vehicle, they're not doing that externally. And I don't see anybody aligning that level of investment. And even if you have that investment, you say, hey, commercial industry's gotten us so far. All we need to do is have that and apply it to defense technologies. It's just not there. So what does that look like? That looks like a focus on data that I just do not see in the department. You see these requirements, hey, the thing's got to drive off-road autonomously, or hey, the thing's got to be able to do ISRT in the South China Sea autonomously. Okay, industry is flying at test ranges in New Mexico or California looking at white Hiluxes. How's that going to apply to a Liang 3? Oh, it's not because no one has that data from industry perspective. If we're lucky at all, the government's collected some data, but the reality is most of it is Intel systems collecting it. So it's living off in some other place if they're even saving it. And it's not available for development. It's not available for industry to come access. So I think the data piece in my mind, like if I was a government PM running a tiny program, I would immediately take half of my budget, set it aside for data. And none of them are doing that, right? They're all, 90% of the budget's going towards buying more air vehicles or buying more ground vehicles. They just aren't gonna have the software in them to be autonomous, in my opinion. I think there's 
pathway there for companies to come in, but the government has to realize, hey, this is a major gap and start dedicating requirements and resourcing toward that gap. I like that. I think that the last, I don't know, basically since the invention of the internet, we have been trending towards availability of free data for everybody and access and democratization and all of these fancy words about getting things in more people's hands. And I certainly think that the next phase of what the internet looks is going to be proprietary. It's who owns what, what do you do with that information? And I would certainly believe that the government and DOD as a whole have got a lot of data that is being underutilized in terms of, I don't know, strategy, improvement, performance, all of that good stuff. I, I definitely agree. Yeah. I love hearing people say, hey, the DOD's got a big data problem. The Navy's got a big data problem. The reality in my mind is having seen, in some cases, sure, there's a shit ton of data, like all the personnel data. Yes, the DOD owns that. It's government owned and maybe they do have a problem with it depending on the system they're using. 17 systems are using, for example. But when it comes to like operational data required for robotics and autonomous systems development and test, I actually, I think the DOD has a lack of data problem. And there is probably some proprietary data that exists out there in industry. But on the whole, industry doesn't have access to the types of environments to collect, to do the development and test that DOD does. Data is a really sensitive topic in the DOD when it comes to program level. People, PMs are just very protective of their data. I used to joke like one of the kind of tragedies of Maven was Maven spent a, a lot of its money, probably half its money on data generation and did not share that very well with the rest of the department. And the reason being is personalities and this the fear that if another program got access to Maven data, then they could train algorithms that would be as performant as Maven and make Maven irrelevant. And so like this whole political drama and BS where the Air Force is the adversary, the Army is the adversary, and then the Air Force and the Army are adversaries with each other. And the reality is there is one adversary. We're all on the same goddamn team. Like we should be democratizing this. That is a tragedy and it's Maven's leadership has changed. Maven's gone through transitions. Maven's data is relatively more accessible now than it was two years ago. But the same thing applies to pick a defense program where they're even lucky enough to own their own data. Because you pick another defense program and Lockheed owns all the data and selling it back to us for $200 million a year. Yeah, one last question for you on this topic. Do you think that the way Andrill is doing business today, and I'm not sure that they are the first company to do that. Maybe they're just the more famous one, but the way that they do business in terms of we're going to do the research and bring something to the DOD to acquire rather than the cost plus model, hey, we're going to make you commit to funding this, whether it's going to work out or not, that we see from the defense primes. Is that the future of defense tech? And I don't know, any commentary that you have on why or why that isn't the effective way to do it? So Andrew, roughly speaking, invests 85% of its revenue profit in IRAD for the next year, which is like very unusual for a traditional defense contractor. And honestly, even unusual for uh, non-traditional defense contractors and commercial dual use companies working in defense. It's very different from applying intuition, for example. What does that get Andrew and what are the pros and cons? So I, first off, I am a 
full believer in this concept. I think the biggest risk is that the government, the government's buying model still largely reflects the way that large defense contractors do their, do their selling. And when you invest IRAD in something, you wind up owning it. So it's a different approach when it comes to data rights and IP that the government typically doesn't see and scares them. And it scares them for a number of reasons. There's one large company that, you know, similar to Andrel, older than Andrel, that's associated with burning the government on this type of thing. And so some of the, you know, captains and majors that were around back in the, back five, six years ago, they're now tank girls and colonels, APMs and PMs. Like their experience was touch the stove. Ow, that really fucking hurt. I'm never touching the stove again. And I think that is a process by which Andrel, others like Andrel, you just have to work through. What's the company so that, that did the that? buyer understand? Yeah, it's Palantir. So, and that, go back to 2001 to 2010, that Palantir is very different from Palantir 2010 to 2020, very different from Palantir now. But the reality is there's perception out there that Palantir was trying to advantage itself over the government. There was a bunch of, hey, we put our data in, we can't get our data back out. I'm not even sure what's true or not true about Palantir in those days. I was a user of Palantir in Afghanistan and I was a big fan of their, of the software, their deployed FSR approach to help someone like me out. But like on the business side, that was all you know upstream for me and someone else's problem. So that kind of mindset of, hey, this is proprietary vendor lock. I'm never going to get my data back out of this. Like that pervades, even though I think the, the reality is it doesn't actually exist anymore, but it's like in the back of people's minds as they think about how do I acquire hardware? How do I acquire software? The other thing I think is that the, a private company's incentives versus a public company's incentives are very different when it comes to business models. Public company, they've got the shareholders. That is literally there every quarter. They owe a report. It's very transparent and open. So profit margins are critical for smaller defense tech companies like in the private stage, the leeway to do like massive IRAD investment and kind of not worry about the, the profit margins is it's less onerous. One, it's not public, publicly transparent. Two, there aren't public shareholders that you owe that kind of profit margin to. So I think what will be interesting is as Android transitions in its life cycle from, you know, private to public at some point in the future, like what, how does that change the Android model relative to the government probably not changing its acquisitions model, if that makes sense. No, it does. And it's, that's such an interesting distinction to make there because you could argue that as a venture backed company, the people who are pushing for the lead investors in a venture backed company are probably more aggressive than public company shareholders. And it's interesting as, yeah, that is an, an absolutely big question mark of, hey, yeah, will I think they that, be able to do this as like a public company if they don't care about is how they do business in the best benefit of the shareholders or is it in the best benefit of the warfighter? Yeah. And I think that VCs generally are looking for like top line growth and maybe not profit margin as much, especially in the early stages of a private company. So how does that look? in later stages when we're not going to double growth, double revenue year over year, but profit margin is more important. So yeah, it's just going to be an interesting thing to watch this play out with Andrew and potentially other companies as they go to IPO. On the warfighter piece, it's interesting. I've had this conversation with people with Andrew, other people in my life, just, hey, you're on the industry now. And the reality is, I don't think anybody out there, I hope that there's no industry 
defense company that's, I'm just here to screw the government over and take my products. Are there probably at the, the very edge distribution, like some companies like that? Absolutely. Like on the whole, most of the people want to deliver a useful product to a warfighter. And even the large defense tech company or defense companies are probably frustrated sometimes with the programs of record and the acquisitions process that the department has. However, I think there's definitely a tension between making the best thing and delivering it, i.e. the Mark Andreessen thing, you make the best mousetrap, the world will be the path to your door. You make the best defense tech capability and deity will show up and shower money on you versus, hey, I need to, I need to actually win this contract. And so that is an interesting tension that I've observed at Andrew and other companies. And my thought process there is, honestly, if you want to make the best, like the warfighter is your number one concern and you want to make the best thing and make sure that it is the program is well designed, et cetera, that industry might not be the right place for you. Government might be the right place for you. That's where you can affect the change that ensures that industry does what you want and delivers the right capability on schedule at cost to the warfighter. It's just something to think about as you're out there. This is why I appreciated my time in government. And if I'm lucky enough, we'll appreciate my time in government again. Because the reality is that's where the power is to ensure that industry delivers something that, that is actually useful. I think a large part of the problem right now, like everybody knows this, it was how many times we've been through acquisitions reform with better buying power 1.0, 2.0, 3.0, PPBE reform, which is where we are now. The requirements process does not translate to a useful capability on the time to a warfighter. It's just where we're at. It's not going to change. I think even PPBE reform, like unless they're going to rewrite Goldwater Nichols and know, stop the Air Force, Army, Navy, and Marine Corps from banning, training, and equipping the way they do now. The reality is the requirement from three or four years ago goes into the POM to get money to then finally go out as a requirement to industry to then finally get delivered and finally get TNE'd. And now you're seven years down the road. The warfighters have been waiting for seven years. They either bought something externally with money they scraped together, or they're finally getting some piece of crap. As I have a piece of crap, it's just technology that doesn't meet their requirement time now. And that's just the cycle that we're all in. Uh, I think there are some interesting acquisitions pathways and there's some interesting organizations in DOD that uh, can obviously end around that, but accelerate that. But 90% of the DOD's funding is going to go through PEOs, so procurement funding going through PEOs, and they're just not going to, they're not agile enough to skirt the DFAR and think creatively about how to get a, a timely requirement and deliver a timely solution. They're just in the process. You highlight a really problematic chicken and egg problem. We need ambitious people like those at Anduril and those starting and doing defense tech today to bring innovative products to market. And we also need competent people in government, like you say, to be searching for those, not looking to just ride out their time and maintain status quo, but look to bring in those technologies and do it in a, a timely and efficient manner. Yeah. I was talking with a guy last night uh, who I used to work with, who's an Air Force acquisitions officer at RCO, which is, in my opinion, like the pinnacle of where capabilities are made rapidly and capably to the extent possible in the DoD. And this guy, the Air Force stood up a top gun for acquisitions. So in the Air Force, there was a school called Weapons School. It goes by aircraft type and there's one for Intel. There's probably one for targeting. They've got one for acquisitions now. So how do you become a top gun acquisitions guy? And I used to give this guy a lot of crap. He went through the first course a couple of years ago. What is a top gun for acquisitions? But he walked me through it last night. And those are the people that we need more of to stay in the DOD and kind of span out to non, not just 
Air Force RCO, other major service programs and Air Force programs to think outside the box for how to link requirements to an acquisitions path that delivers something faster. And the frozen middle of people that have been acquisitions for the last 10, 15, 20, 25 years, like those people, you can't teach an old dog new tricks, right? They're, just, they're gonna do the thing they do based on what they learned. And, and that is it, no matter, no amount of new authorities or, or new offerings are gonna change that unless there's some kind of incentive in place to, to force them to change. I couldn't agree more. I am very glad that we have people like yourself and a lot of the people that you've spoken about on this call, like looking to do that. I think that's encouraging, probably still have a long way to go, but I, this has been an encouraging and enlightening conversation call. And I appreciate you coming on and chatting with me. If you had to leave us with one thing that we could take away from you and maybe you only. What do you think that would be? Oh man, this is a difficult one. I'm not known for unique thoughts. So yeah, definitely not unique, but I think the concept of understanding that people are the foundation of everything and that people lead to culture. And that if you're building something, you need to think of culture from the very beginning, cannot be applied later. It's very difficult to apply later. Culture could be super high level. And this is just generally how we all think about the world. It could be much more specific as to values and principles that we're all going to follow. I'd probably lean more towards the latter approach to culture, which is write it down, write down a mission statement, write down your values. Everybody understands it. You can update it as time goes every year or two years. But that is really critical to any kind of organization, whether it's a DUD org or whether it's industry org, ensuring that everyone sees the world the same way and is rowing in the same direction. It'll simplify your life so much more than when you're 100 people or 200 people or 2,000 people and you're going back and going, man, I, I've got 20 different agendas and people are running off on straight tangents. Very difficult to get that back in the box. I think that's really good and smart. Get some good food for thought for those out there building companies and uh, looking to start one. It's uh, hard to rewind the clock and implement that culture that you think that you ought to be doing. It's uh, That's a day one decision for sure. Colin, I, like I said, I appreciate you coming on. What can myself and or anybody listening do to be useful to you? Oh man, Andrew's definitely hiring. Andrew.com slash careers. Andrew's growing in a big way. As far I'm as sure people me, will like, be lining up at the door to come and interview with you. If you do your run routine, show up smelly and late. That'll be if you can still get away with that. Yeah. I haven't had the pleasure of pulling that routine off in a couple of years now. Yeah, Andrew's hiring for me in particular. Yeah, I want to ensure that not just Andrel or Applied Twitch Chin or our partner companies that we work with, but I want to ensure that it's not just those companies that do a great job. Part of my thought process is I would much rather when I go back to DOD, not have to look at a four-year gap and say, okay, industry still hasn't figured any of this stuff out. And I'm still dealing with people where I hold their hand continuously about how it works. So I am very motivated by growing the entire ecosystem rising tide lists all ships such that, you know, when the time comes and we need everybody to, to be on the same page against a specific adversary, it's not a lot of defense tech and commercial companies in a kumbaya circle going, just, we don't know how this works. Give us money. We need more money, which is a lot of what I see, like the whining coming today. So understanding how the DOD acquires stuff, if you're going to do business with the Department of Defense, like get the right people on board that understand that and can work within that system. Sitting on the outside complaining about acquisitions and PPV reform, like that's not gonna, it's not gonna make any money. If we're lucky, we'll see reforms. Maybe they will be great. 
we'll see impacts from them five to six years from now. Like that's not going to matter between now and the flag going up. Awesome. I appreciate it so much, Colin. Thank you so much for your time. Yeah, practicing great. Thanks so much for tuning in today. Your listenership helps me better educate people like you and the rest of our nation's military, both past and present, on building a successful life outside of military service. If you're looking for more ways the top vets are leading more effective lifestyles, building businesses, and using the resources designed specifically for you, press here for a selection of some of the best clips. Be sure to like this video and subscribe to the channel to stay up to date, and I will be talking with you soon.